Well, uh, you can uh, turn in your Bibles to First John chapter four. First John chapter four, and as you turn there, just let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this small gathering and um, just for this ability to be able to gather in a very simple way, but yet a meaningful way. And Lord, I thank you for each person that's here. And Lord, I pray that you would just bless this time now as we look at your word, encourage our hearts, strengthen us by your word, Lord, and help us to marvel at all that you've done for us in Jesus. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would accomplish your purposes here this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read for us um, 1 John 4. I'm going to read from verses 7 uh, to 12, though we're primarily just going to be looking at verses 9 to 11. But let me read um, from 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Two weeks ago, we began the season of Advent, and we looked at uh, two weeks ago uh, the first theme, which was hope, and last week, which was peace. And today, as you know, we're looking at the theme love, and specifically God's love. Now, there's probably no word that has been hijacked and abused more in our culture than the word love. By secular people, but but also by professing Christians, a lot of Christians tend to reduce God's love to the idea of unconditional love. But that's actually not an accurate or a full picture of God's love. If you read the Bible carefully, God's love is portrayed at minimum, in about five different ways, which we don't have time to cover this evening. But um, So we as Christians tend to reduce God's love to this idea of unconditional love that really isn't as accurate as we often think. Often think. Our secular culture as well um, has reduced the idea of love to this primarily... Um, unconditional acceptance. And really, our our culture's understanding of love is in so many ways contrary to the biblical understanding of love. For example, if you ever suggest to a secular person that afflicting pain on someone can be a means of love, they would think you're crazy. And yet Proverbs 13.24 tells us, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And of course, we think of Hebrews 11 itself, the the greatest chapter on discipline where, um, or not Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. I mean, mix those two up. No, it's Hebrews 12, right? Yeah. 
where God disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son. And he actually, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that if you've never been disciplined by God, you're an illegitimate child. So there are situations in which it is loving to actually inflict pain for the good of the individual. But our secular culture would not embrace such a notion. See, our secular culture assumes that love means unconditional acceptance and the end of judgment. There's no no judgment in love. Ellen DeGeneres um, once had a guest on her show who described herself as non-binary meaning she refers to herself as falling somewhere outside of the boxes of man or woman. So she desires to be known not as she or her, but as they or them. It's interesting, in the interview, Ellen, um, she struggled a little bit with the language, but she came to the conclusion, Ellen the philosopher, that love gives us the answer to how to respond to a situation like that. And really, what she basically said was this, is we should accept this woman's identity claim. This is her precise words. I think it's just about letting people be who they are and love who they want to love. And if you're not hurting anybody, then there's nothing wrong with it. Now, there's so many assumptions in this statement uh, that I could preach a whole sermon just on showing the philosophical assumptions that Ellen's making. But basically, what what she's saying is this. Love is no longer bound to what is true. Love is no longer bound to what is reality. Not only that, love is no longer bound to what is good, what is morally right. It's purely unconditional acceptance, regardless of what is true or good. Now, that's not the biblical understanding of love. God's love is righteous and holy. God's love has moral demands. God's love is bound to what is true and good. So what is love then? Well, let me give you a a basic definition. It's not not, uh, all-encompassing, but it is a starting point that I think the Bible conveys or um, teaches on what love is. Um, and so, and then we're going to look at, after I give this definition, 1 John 4, and, and look at a specific aspect of God's love. So here's my best basic definition of how I think the Bible describes love, though it's not a full definition. Here it is. Love is to delight in the other and desire or pursue the well-being of the other or the good of the other. So love is to delight in the other, but also pursue the good of the other. So there is an element with love that is, it's an affection, right? When, when, when I love my wife, what I'm partly meaning is I delight in my wife. I treasure my wife. There is something about her that I find lovable, right? But also in loving my wife, I pursue her good. I seek out her well-being. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of that, but but we do see this clearly with, for example, God the Father's love towards his Son. Right? For example, the Father delights in his Son. He loves his Son, right? With whom I am well pleased. He desires fellowship with his Son, right? 
but he also desires the good of his son. He seeks to exalt his son over all creation. He seeks to give his son the name that is above all other names. So the father delights in his son and the father seeks the good of his son. So that, that's just an example of how that the scriptures teach that or affirm that definition. So now we come to 1 John 4, 9 to 11, which captures a certain aspect of God's love. And it doesn't encompass all of what it means for God to be a God of love. But, but here in these verses, we're given a glimpse into God's incredible love for us. Now, the context is John is, John is primarily exhorting the believers to love one another, right? You see this in verse 7 where he says, Beloved, let us love one another. And then verse 11 to 12 where he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, right? So the emphasis is, is this exhortation to love one another. But in his exhortation, he gives us the reasoning or the, the grounding for why we ought to love one another. In verse 7 to 8, for example, the reason for why we ought to love one another rests upon what? Anybody see it? Verse 7 and 8. Why ought we to love one another? Yeah, because God is love, right? As John states, love is from God. And God is love. So love one another because God himself is love. That is, he's love in his very being. As theologians in the past have described God as the fountain of love. But how do we actually know that God is fundamentally love? Or, or how do we know that God actually loves us? Well, verses 9 and 10 reveals to us how we know God is love and how we know that he loves us. In verses 9 and 10, we are actually presented with the incarnation, right? The Son of God entering into our world clothed in humanity. This is what Christmas is about. See, the incarnation isn't just about the birth of Jesus. It captures his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so the first thing that I want us to see is that the incarnation in verses 9 to 10, specifically verse 9 here, the first thing is the story of Christmas reveals that God is love and he loves us. So look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So God's love was, was made manifest. It was, it was revealed. How was it revealed? God sent his only son into the world so that we might find life through him. You see, there's a plethora of ways in which God reveals his love for us. But the son of God entering into our world is God's exclamation point in revealing his love for us. As Calvin states, we have the love of God towards us testified also by many other proofs. For if it be asked why the world has been created, why we have been placed in it to possess the dominion of the earth, why we are preserved in life to enjoy innumerable blessings, why we are endowed with light and understanding, 
No other reason can be adduced except the gratuitous love of God. But the apostle here has chosen that principal evidence of it, and what far surpasses all other things. For it was not only an immeasurable love that God spared not his own son, that by his death he might restore us to life, but it was goodness the most marvelous, which ought to fill our minds with the greatest wonder and amazement. Christ, then, is so illustrious and singular a proof of divine love towards us that whenever we look upon him, he fully confirms to us the truth that God is love. You see, Advent is a reminder to us that the all the all-powerful God who reigns over all of creation is also the God who loves us. And any time your heart begins to doubt whether God truly loves you, we are responsible to call to mind that Jesus Christ has come into this world so that we might live through him. That is the love of God for us. That is God manifesting his love towards us. So in verse 9, God reveals, he manifests his love by Jesus coming into the world. But in verse 10, John reveals to us not just that God's love has been manifested, he reveals to us the nature of God's love. You see, the incarnation reveals to us the nature of God's love. So look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now you notice how verse 10 begins and verse 9 begins, right? In this, the love of God was made manifest. And now in verse 10, he says, in this is love. That is, he's actually telling us what love is. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there are four things in this short verse that tell us about the nature of God's love, which I'm going to briefly, very briefly highlight. The first thing we see is this. God's love, God loves us, though we are unworthy of such love. Now that's implied in the phrase, for example, he's the propitiation for our sins. We are sinners. But it's also implied in the phrase, not that we have loved God. Right? God loved us despite the fact that we did not love him back. God loved us despite our unworthiness. He didn't love us because we were lovely. He loved us because he chose to love us. See, a better term than unconditional love to describe God's love is, I think, what David Wells calls contra-conditional love. That is, God loves us contrary to what we deserve. See, as one commentator puts it, the entire plan of redemption finds as its wellspring the love of God, poured out on sinners who are God's enemies and far from being intrinsically lovely. This is one of the distinctive, this is one of the distinctives of God's love. While with only rare exceptions, humans in this fallen world is poured out only, poured out only on that which the lover finds lovely, God's love springs from within himself, and it is not dependent on the loveliness of the person or the thing. That is love. So God loves us contrary to what we deserve. Secondly, and this might sound controversial, but it's not. God's love revealed here in this passage reveals that God's love is conditional. It's conditional. It's not unconditional. It's conditional. Here's what I mean by this. 
If God's love is unconditional, it wouldn't be necessary for Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, Jesus coming into the world and dying for our sins demonstrates that there are conditions that must be met in order for us to be recipients of God's love and forgiveness. And here's the glorious thing about the gospel. Jesus meets every single one of those conditions for us on our behalf. So God's love is conditional, but Christ meets the conditions. Thirdly, we see from this passage that God's love seeks our well-being, our good. And we see that in the phrase, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the propitiation for our sins in order that we might be reconciled to our creator, which is what? Our greatest good. God desires that which is best for us, and so Christ dies for us so that we might become children of God, which is our greatest good. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, what does propitiation mean? Well, propitiation, in a very simple way, is the idea of turning away wrath by an offering. So Jesus turns away God's wrath from the sinner by being the sacrifice, the offering for our sins, which is for our good. So God seeks, God's love seeks our good. And finally, the fourth thing we see about God's love here is this. God's love is sacrificial in its nature, right? Christ was the propitiation for our sins. That is, Christ sacrificed himself in our place. God the Father sacrificed his Son in our place. The love of God is sacrificial. Love always entails sacrifice. I don't think you could think of a single situation where love happens and there hasn't been an act of sacrifice involved. You see, if you want to experience love without sacrifice, then your experience of love will be shallower than a puddle. But if you're willing to sacrifice to experience the fullness of love, then your experience of love will be, be as deep as the ocean. You see, to truly love someone, it demands sacrifice. And the sacrifice of God's Son demonstrates, demonstrates how much God truly loves us, even when we were unworthy of such love. So, the incarnation reveals, manifests God's love to us. It, it reveals the nature of God's love. That is, God loves us, though we're unlert, unworthy of such love. It's this contra-conditional love. God's love is also conditional, but Christ meets the conditions. God, God's love seeks our ultimate good. God's love is sacrificial in its nature. Which leads to my final point, which directly comes out of verse 11. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought to, we also ought to love one another. Because God has loved us, we ought to love one another. That's a moral obligation, that word ought. You see, the, the secularist, the atheist, they can choose to love someone if they like. But they don't have to, according to their worldview. There's no ought. Whereas we as Christians believe there is an ought upon us. There is a moral obligation because God is love and we are called to represent God. 
So we are called to love one another precisely in the ways that God loves us. You see, we should seek to love one another even when the other is unworthy of such love. If you've been a part of the Church of Jesus Christ long enough, you know that there are times where your brothers and sisters are not worthy of your love. And yet we are called to love one another. We should love one another also by exhorting each other to live by the conditions that God requires of his children. Jude tells us in the scriptures, keep yourself in the love of God, which implies that there are conditions that we, will, that we might not keep, and therefore we can fall out of the love of God. So we as Christians ought to love one another in such a way that we are exhorting each other to actually meet the conditions that God requires. This is not works righteousness, but it is a form of what it means to live in the love of God. As Jesus says, abide in me. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Not only that, we should love one another by seeking the good of one another. And finally, we should love one another with a sacrificial love. If we are going to be faithful as brothers and sisters towards each other, in loving each other, it should cost us. If there's no sacrifice in your life in regards to loving your fellow members, you're not fulfilling what Christ has called us to do in regards to loving our brothers and sisters. And as we do this, we will actually fulfill what the Apostle Paul calls Christians to in Ephesians 5, 1-2, where he says, be imitators of God. What an incredible statement. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this Advent season, I encourage you to ponder the incredible love of God for you and to walk in love and in so doing, be an imitator of our great triune God.